0: From the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, this is Pitt MedCast. I'm Elaine Vitone. In this episode, as part of our magazine's Tough Questions series, we explore a sensitive topic, intimate partner violence. A warning, this episode discusses sexual assault and other violence that some listeners might find troubling. begin with a story years ago physician Elizabeth Miller was working in a family medicine clinic a patient a woman in her 50s came in to see her with high blood pressure and type 2 diabetes
1: and being the eager young physician at the time I kept increasing her insulin and her other diabetes medications and adjusting her blood pressure medicines and-
0: Miller thought of everything. She took steps to ensure these injections and pills were affordable for the patient. She dutifully upped the doses over time as the problems persisted. But nothing seemed to help. Months and years passed, and the woman's BP and glucose were still through the roof. Then one day, as Miller was scratching her head at the numbers again, she looked up at her patient and said,
1: I just can't understand what I'm doing wrong. I can't seem to help get your diabetes and blood pressure under control. And then I just paused. And she said, so I'm not sure how to tell you this. He's been throwing my medicines away.
0: And out tumbled a devastating story of brutality and humiliation at the hands of her husband. Over the years that this patient was in her care, Miller had brought up partner violence many times. It's part of the standard laundry list of things that doctors ask women about in the clinic, right along with smoking, exercise, and sleep. But the woman had never said a word about the hell she was living.
1: It was an incredibly profound sort of moment. So often we're trained just to think about medication and medication adherence and completely missing the ways in which partners can interfere with care in such profound ways. And it was amazing to be able to walk this journey with her, to be able to connect with our advocate, to be able to start to offer some ways in which you could think about increasing her safety, getting better control over not only her health conditions, but her life as well.
0: Clinic, relationship abuse, now known as intimate partner violence, can take on a number of unexpected guises, Miller says. Not following medical advice, non adherence, as doctors call it, is just one. She's come to see non adherence as a possible red flag because many times, abuse survivors, usually women, are absolutely on board to follow their doctor's orders. But their partners are trashing their pills, for example or sabotaging the car on the day of the appointment, or threatening violence if they go. One in three women in the United States have experienced physical or sexual violence from a partner at some point in their lifetime. Those numbers don't even include non-physical forms of intimate partner violence, like controlling behavior or emotional abuse. All forms of intimate partner violence can have devastating effects on health, both in the short term and the long haul. Survivors have much higher rates of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, substance abuse, and disordered eating. They have more unintended pregnancies and sexually transmitted infections, including HIV. They're more likely to develop chronic pain and autoimmune disorders. And, as in the case of the woman from Miller's story, survivors often have little control over how well they manage whatever chronic health conditions they may face. Miller, a pediatrician who specializes in adolescent medicine, is a Pitt professor of pediatrics, of public health, and of clinical and translational science, as well as director of adolescent and young adult medicine at UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. She came to Pitt in 2011, joining one of her scholarly heroes.
2: My name is Judy Chang. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. have a secondary appointment in General Internal Medicine at the Institute for Clinical Research and Education.
0: Between them, Chang and Miller have several decades of experience as women's health care providers and community advocates, as well as researchers investigating how social situations affect women's health. Recently, I sat down with these two pit experts to discuss how doctors and the community at large can better help survivors. They explained that physicians are extremely well positioned for this. The clinic can serve as a safe, accessible, and confidential hub for information and support. And yet, Chang and Miller have found that the standard way doctors are trained to broach the subject of intimate partner violence is missing the mark. The pair have devised a new strategy that they've shown to be effective at preventing women from falling through the cracks. First, some terms. What is intimate partner violence? Chang says it's often misunderstood. Many times it's a constant presence in people's lives, but they may not even realize that what's happening to them is wrong and harmful.
2: People have different images that the words domestic violence or intimate partner violence may evoke. And many of those really focus more on physical violence or specific forms of physical violence. You know, some people say, well, it's never a punch. I'm pushed, grabbed, and choked, but I'm never punched, and therefore it's not intimate partner violence. And so that the use of the terms is. Something that we're hoping that people start to veer away from, or at least just as you were asking us to do, to define when we have the conversations with individuals so that they can understand what we mean by that. It's very easy for folks to say, well, that can't be me. I'm not a victim. I'm not experiencing abuse. It's helpful to give a definition of intimate partner violence. It's sort of a complicated term. Essentially, it's whenever there is either physical, threats of physical, sexual violence being perpetrated from one partner to another, people being controlled and dominated and made me afraid to essentially make their own decisions and live their own sort of free will.
1: There is still a common assumption that domestic violence involves broken bones and bruises, when in fact so much of what we call intimate partner violence is the emotional, the controlling behaviors, the sexual violence, things that happen in the bedroom, the coercion, the financial dependence... You know, threats of taking the children away, you know, all kinds of emotional and psychological abuse. And for us as healthcare providers, until relatively recently, we had not even acknowledged the extent to which abusive partners interfere with accessing health care, can interfere with use of medication and adherence to medication, and even use substances, including opioids, as a way to control their partner.
0: What are some of the newer forms of intimate partner violence in the 21st century?
2: There is a new phenomenon that you can sometimes hear the term called cyber abuse or cyber stalking. And that's the use of technology to control the other person that can involve monitoring, you know, different technologies that will monitor, track where people are, monitors their interactions, getting login and passwords so that they can monitor and control their communication, but also in terms of the social media, the threats of posting things that would be psychologically, professionally, or socially detrimental, the use of information against them, the framing of information in ways that could be used against a person. Those are some of the new flavors that we're seeing in terms of intimate partner vibes.
0: Miller stressed that cyber dating abuse is especially prevalent among young people. In one study, the team surveyed adolescents seeking care in confidential clinics in their high schools.
1: And over 40% of the young people, both boys and girls, were reporting experiences of cyber dating abuse in the last three months. And so incredibly prevalent. And there's a certain routinization, normalization of these kinds of behaviors, you know, as well, and sort of saying things via text that you would never actually say to somebody to their face, which ends up being very, very hurtful. And so among the projects that we've been working on is how do you help parents, adult allies, healthcare providers to actually talk to young people about healthy ways to use social media as well.
0: Emerging literature suggests that incidence of intimate partner violence is exceedingly high among sexuality and gender minority individuals.
1: And while we don't totally understand all the mechanisms, like why is it that that is higher, why the victimization is so high, it is probably related to experiences of discrimination and marginalization. It is also true that Native American women, for example, experience a much higher prevalence of intimate partner violence. And I think paying attention at the very local community level Two factors that contribute to increased levels of violence, that this isn't intimate partner violence just in isolation, but it's nested within histories of oppression, nested within multiple other forms of violence and trauma. And we can't really tackle prevention of violence against women without addressing these other layers of ways in which we have hurt and harmed others.
0: Another term to unpack is reproductive coercion.
1: So reproductive coercion is a constellation of behaviors, often in the context of heterosexual sexual relationships, where a male partner will be explicitly attempting to impregnate his female partner against her wishes. So I became aware of this phenomenon of reproductive coercion in the context of interviewing young people about their experiences in abusive relationships. And the very first young person I interviewed was an 18-year-old young woman with a 2-year-old son. And as I was asking about her relationships, she said, well, you know, he was trying to get me pregnant on purpose. He told all of my friends we were going to start a family. I didn't want to start a family, I wanted to finish school. And she went on to describe how he flushed her birth control pills down the toilet.
0: For that study, Miller interviewed about 60 young women who had a history of abusive relationships. And about a quarter of them had stories like this, flushing birth control pills, preventing the woman from getting to the clinic on time for her Depo-Provera injection, removing the birth control patch breaking or putting holes in the condom, removing the condom during sex, pulling out the vaginal ring. Story after story of explicit birth control sabotage of every imaginable variety.
1: But there were also stories kind of along the lines of, honey, we're going to make beautiful babies together. So kind of pregnancy pressure, as well as threats to leave the relationship if she didn't get pregnant. And certainly from the, young woman's perspective perceiving that this partner was actively trying to get her pregnant when she didn't want to be. And what we have shown is that reproductive coercion is no surprise associated with pregnancies that are unwanted, mistimed, unplanned, and are associated with more sexually transmitted infections and certainly associated with other forms of intimate partner violence. The prevalence of reproductive coercion is also quite stunning. In the family planning clinic setting, about a quarter of women are saying that they've ever experienced reproductive coercion. In the general population, it's about 10% of women reporting experiences of birth control, sabotage, or pregnancy pressure, as well as condom manipulation. Now, Reproductive coercion is absolutely experienced by men as well. It looks something like their female partner saying that she's using contraception, but in fact is not, and trying to get pregnant on purpose for a multitude of reasons that could include wanting to keep the relationship together and so forth. But as in health professionals, especially as Dr. Chang and I take care of many young women and adult women as well, that reproductive coercion is actually something we can do something about in the sense that we can offer contraceptive options that a partner can't interfere with, you know, including the intrauterine device, and offering emergency contraception that she can take along with her, you know, other ways to help in the context of reproductive coercion.
0: Miller says that in the minds of adolescents especially, reproductive coercion often doesn't even register as abuse.
1: And yet, when I talk about, with my patients, what I have seen and heard from other young women, inevitably they'll lean in and say, That's what's going on for me, too. And so it is definitely a phenomenon that we need to be talking more about, making sure that young people are aware of and understand the strategies that they can use themselves to try to prevent pregnancies that they don't want.
0: Then Miller told a story about a patient she had years ago, an immigrant who was 19 years old,
1: who... um, I met for the first time when I diagnosed a pregnancy and she sat on the exam room table in tears saying, I didn't want to have a baby. He wants to have a baby. And a situation where her husband had been in the U.S. for longer and then had brought her over to, to live in the U.S. and she had really hoped that she would go to university, continue her education. Given that I was doing family medicine at the time, was able to take care of her through her pregnancy and and be the pediatrician for her baby. And after she had her first baby, she started on a birth control pill and was hiding the pill. She took it out of the pill pack and hid the pills around the house so that her husband would not know that she was on contraception. She missed a few pills, ended up pregnant again. And after she had her second baby, he said, well, what are your thoughts about preventing pregnancy? And she said, I can't have another, I can't have a third baby. And I said, well, what about something like the Depo-Provera injection your partner wouldn't have to know about? And she said, no, because that messes with your periods, and he monitors my period every month. And so I said, how about we consider the copper IUD so you'll still have your period. She said, I'm really worried that he's going to feel the strings. And she was like, can you cut those strings? And I was like, I've not done that before, I'm willing to do it. And so we actually placed this copper IUD without the strings, telling her that when it was time for her to have that taken out, it may require a little bit more of a procedure. About five years into our primary care relationship, She came in one evening, just as I was getting ready to leave the office, and said, Liz, you've been talking to me about this all these years, and he threw a chair at me this evening. It's the first time it's gotten physical, and I know that you can help. And we called the hotline, got a victim service advocate immediately, and she had packed her bags, came with her two daughters, and left with the victim service advocate to go to shelter. And so it was really such an important lesson about listening to our patients, partnering with our patients, but also allowing our patients to guide us towards harm reduction strategies that I would never even have thought about.
0: What are some of the common misconceptions among healthcare providers about women experiencing intimate partner violence?
2: I think the biggest one is the focus on leaving and the assumption that that, you know, if they really wanted to, like, address the violence, that leaving would be the answer. And I, you know, I can't completely blame people for thinking that way because it seems logical. You see someone in a bad situation, your gut reaction is, like, let's get you out of the bad, you know, situation. Um... The challenge with that though, is that it's not always the safest thing. It's not always feasible. It's not always what would be meeting all the other needs and issues that that person may be dealing with in terms of financially socially issues around obligations with to our children to you know other family members, connections with community and other things that one might rely on for that relationship as well as The very real issue of being in love with that person who is likely not always behaving in this way. And so therefore, there's this concept of it being like a like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation where, you know, once in a while that monster comes out who is not the person you fell in love with. But, you know, if there could only be some way to exercise that demon then that would be the thing that they're working towards. And so all of those things make it complicated and make leaving not always the desired thing, but it's also not always the safest thing. And we've seen that associated quite honestly with the homicide statistics. And so across the states in general, between about 38 to 35% of women who are murdered are murdered by either a current or former intimate partner. It's very different than who murders men. About Mm -hmm. 2 to 3 percent of those who murder men are actually their intimate partners, former or current. So in general, a huge suspect in any woman and any murder of a woman would be a partner, a current or former partner. What we've seen is that leaving can sometimes escalate that. And so there's been several studies that have shown that there's a high correlation between breaking up, filing for a divorce, kicking the person out, you know, essentially any type of thing that ends the relationship with the possibility of a homicidal attack. And so we can't take that lightly. And I think that's one of the gut reactions that some healthcare professionals and providers might feel if they haven't had more training and understanding of the issue is that we just need to get you out or you just need to end that relationship or you just need a divorce. It's not so easy, and it's not always the safest advice.
0: Of course, you can't help someone unless you know that they need it. And doctors do ask women this all the time. Do you feel safe in your relationship? That's sort of the standard question. But Chang says that this go-to script isn't cutting it.
2: Even the word safe, are you safe, can sometimes be misunderstood. You know, what do you mean by safe? I'm safe at this moment safe relative to, I don't think I'm going to be killed. I might be beaten up and I'm not going to be killed.
0: Some years ago, Chang did a survey of survivors looking for better ways into these difficult conversations. And they got lots of common sense tips. Use a non-judgmental tone, maintain eye contact, have the conversation with no one else around, and certainly when the woman is fully clothed and sitting up. But in talking with these women, the team came to realize that their frame of reference did not fit at all. See, doctors have a mantra to keep us all healthy and head off disease before damage is done.
2: Screening, testing, diagnosis, referral, or treatment. Screening, testing, diagnosis, referral, or treatment.
0: Or, in the case of intimate partner violence, it's more like...
2: Screen, identify, and basically convince her she needs to get out. We just need to get you out, or you just need to end that relationship, or you just need a divorce.
0: So Chang designed her study to improve on step one, screen.
2: And what was eye-opening to me was that they said that even if we asked the best way, we were the nicest person ever, they still might not be ready to disclose. It's just hard. It's scary. It's hard. They may not have said it out loud to even themselves before. And so what they wanted us to recognize is to have patience, but to also give them the information and resources and support without requiring the disclosure. So to not keep all of that information hostage to the yes answer, but instead make it freely available so that they can be welcomed to that information and then use it when they're ready. And so that was an aha moment for me because I was trained in the preventive medicine model of screening, testing, diagnosis, referral, or treatment, and that didn't fit in that. This whole concept of, you know, maybe I don't need to know the diagnosis. Maybe the patient actually needs to know that she can make her own diagnosis. And if she does that, then she can access those resources herself or if I make them available, if I point them out, if I make it easy for her to have those. So that's one of the the key things that I think I learned in terms of changing my practice.
0: At this point in the interview, Miller gushes.
1: It is just so beautiful that I get to do this interview together with Judy, is that I actually was aware of her research long before I moved to
0: Pittsburgh. She had read Chang's paper when it came out, and it was completely transformative, she says. Miller had been thinking long and hard about this and looking for answers for years.
1: So for me, back in the early 2000s was when I, too, had been trained in the screen identify and basically convince her she needs to get out of the relationship, (laughs) right? And I say it now going, wow, what were we thinking, right? But that was how I was trained. So here I am sitting in the early 2000s with a 15-year-old girl who had come in for a pregnancy test, her pregnancy test was negative. She was not using any birth control. I automatically assumed she needed to be educated on her birth control options. And along the way, I asked her the adult you know, domestic violence question, do you feel safe in your relationship? And she was like, huh? And I was like, well, can you get your boyfriend to use condoms? And she's like, sometimes. And I handed her a brown bag full of condoms, and I said, it's important to talk to your boyfriend about using condoms every time, and when you're ready to decide what you want to use for birth control, come back and see me. I'm here every Thursday evening. And two weeks later, she was in our emergency room, having sustained a severe head injury, having been pushed down the stairs by her boyfriend. And so, like, there it was, right, staring me in the face, and I had completely... miss this, which was really what prompted my commitment to trying to study this.
0: So Chang's 2006 paper was like a lightning bolt. This was exactly what Miller had been looking for.
1: The whole mistake that I made was counting on this kid's disclosure instead of offering her information, saying, you know, Sometimes when I see a young person who doesn't want to be pregnant and isn't using any birth control, it's because their partner's trying to get them pregnant when they don't want to be. And here's some information, and I'm here to talk about this kind of stuff, and take some extra information for your friends. We're offering this information to all of our patients because far too many of our patients have experienced unhealthy relationships that have a huge impact on their health and well-being, and maybe this information is relevant for you I bet you it's relevant for somebody that you know. And,
0: and that's how Chang and Miller do it now. The usual MO, screen, diagnose, treat, is turned on its head. They offer the information right up front, no questions asked. Well, at least no questions asked yet. And they're finding that actually, women really like this. It's because it makes it
1: easy to take the information, but it also makes them think about the people in their lives who they care deeply about, and to reach out to provide more support, to build connection, and what a meaningful way to promote healing within our community. So, you know, I'm just profoundly grateful to Judy for having done that work because it is really, it completely informs the way in which we are shifting the work that we do in the healthcare setting. We've now tested this approach in numerous randomized trials, finding that not only do the patients like it, their knowledge increases about resources, their ability and their confidence to use strategies to help increase their safety increases, and especially in our adolescent work, we're seeing significant reductions in experiences of abuse.
2: What we've seen is that individuals like to help other individuals, right? They like to be helpful to others. Many of the women who participate in our studies with really about intimate partner violence will say that their main reason why they're participating is not because of any type of incentive that we're giving, but because they want to help other people experiencing this too. And so this type of approach empowers everybody to become an advocate and empowers everybody to be an educator and empowers everybody to be a supporter because we're giving this to everybody.
0: There's another common misconception that crops up a lot when Chang and Miller talk to their fellow doctors, and that is, oh boy, it sure sounds like you're asking me to do yet another thing, another requirement, another screening. There are already too many of these things to cram into a patient visit and not enough time to do them.
2: would do this if I were, if I had more time. If, you know, if I had more time, if I weren't running behind, if I had more time, you know, this would just be much easier. And it's very interesting because it doesn't take that much time to say what Liz just said. It doesn't take much time to say, I just wanted to talk to you about domestic violence, and what we define about that is that that's when there's physical sexual violence or controlling or humiliating behavior that one person does to another. just want to say that it's not okay, it can affect people's health, and that there's help available. That's it. That's it. That's it. it. Wow. So, and we can kind of time it and see what yeah. that was. <laughs> Compare that to not knowing why the blood pressure is not getting under control, mm. trying to figure out why this birth control method is not being used over and over and over again. Compare that to that and really, where is the most effective use of your time?
0: Chang has studied what motivates people to finally tell someone what's going on and ask for help. And initially, the team used a tried-and-true framework in medicine. It's called behavior change theory, and scholars have applied it to all sorts of things, like weight loss and smoking. But Chang's team found that intimate partner violence, for all its devastating effects on the body and mind, does not fit this tried-and-true model in medicine. Because survivors aren't the ones with the pathological behaviors, their abusers are. And when the team asked these women what kinds of things nudged them toward the on-ramp to safety, three common threads emerged. One, awareness.
2: Awareness was, you know, when they recognized that this was not normal, this was not healthy, and this was not their fate, meaning that there was some other options. So that awareness that this was not an okay behavior and that they deserved and had the right to experiencing different types of behavior from their partners.
0: Two, support.
2: That they were not alone. That there were others who that they can reach out to for help in this process.
0: And three, empowerment.
2: Meaning that they could have agency, that they could take a step to actually get themselves towards something looking more like the type of safe experiences and situations that they're hoping for. What we realized is that all of those three domains were things that healthcare providers can do. Like we can actually influence and provide something that addresses each one of those. The educational component by doing universal education for their awareness, the supportive component by saying we're always here, whatever you decide, you can always come back. There's an open door, here's our hours, here's the way to reach us when it's after hours, you know, this is us and we're here. And the empowerment. You can do things. Let me give you things that might be helpful for you to do. Let me help you brainstorm what you can do for yourself. Let's see if we can figure out a safety plan or some safety-promoting behaviors, and let's see if there are some of those that resonate with you that you think you can take a little step towards. So I think that if we, as clinicians,
1: reframe our goals around intimate partner violence, to help ourselves move away from that idea of, I have to get a disclosure, and I need to then get them out of this relationship, right? That sort of rescue fantasy. That shift for us, I think, as clinicians, puts us in a place for that I hope is why we got into the healing profession in the first place. And being able to partner with our patients in this way, I think, is so different than a simple you know, screening and disclosure and referral.
0: Once, Chang did a study with a focus group. These were all women who were survivors of abuse. They were living in a shelter at the time. And one day, a young woman in the group said that she loved her doctor. And then she shared what happened when she finally disclosed to him that her husband was physically abusing her.
2: And he had paused and really looked at her and said, I am so sorry. He said, I have to admit, I don't know much about this topic, but I am willing to learn with you. So can you tell me everything you learn so that I can not only help you, but help other people who are experiencing this too? And it was just like there was this huge, oh, my God, going all around the room where all of the women were just like, wow, what's his name? He sounds fantastic. And so it was universal in terms of the reaction. It doesn't take much. You don't have to be an expert. In fact, not assuming that role of expert is probably helpful. Being able to have the humility to say, what do you need? Help guide me. Let's work together so that we can go through this together. If they learn the skills on how to truly partner and how to really have a relationship-centered communication and interactions with their patients, then they'll be able to do this. You know, they'll be able to do this.
0: Miller stresses that physicians are not alone in this. Thanks to Violence Against Women Act legislation, there's continuous federal funding to support victim service agencies. Their advocates provide all kinds of support. Legal services, accompanying people to court, support around things like child care, mental health, unemployment. And for all you busy doctors out there, and actually anyone who wants to help someone who's going through this, something you can do today, right now, is memorize the National Domestic Violence Hotline number. Are you ready? It's one 800 799 safe
2: and that is staffed 24 7 by advocates who can link that person to their local resources but also can provide safety planning and crisis counseling and be a empathetic and supportive ear for anyone who needs that person or needs those services immediately and that's easy enough for us to memorize so hopefully that's easy enough for a person who doesn't feel safe taking anything in writing To also memorize so that they have those resources.
0: I'll say it one more time, 1-800-799-SAFE.
1: Our prevention efforts are absolutely critical, and we need to start talking early and often with our children about the expectations of healthy relationships and what healthy relationships look like. We need to challenge the social norms that condone violence in general, but specifically attitudes, harmful masculinities that condone violence against women. Because today we've talked a lot about the impact on women and women's health. And while it is true that men experience intimate partner violence as well, the disproportionate number of people in our country who experience intimate partner violence are women, and that violence is being perpetrated by men. And so we have to think about how we can challenge these broader social norms, where we have come to tolerate violence against women as, like, well, that's what happens. And it has been heartbreaking for me to work with middle school and high school students where a preponderance of young people already think that violence against women is just normal. And we need to change that script and change it urgently.
0: And on Chang's wish list... Better understanding and awareness of trauma across healthcare and human services.
2: Because those who perpetrate intimate partner violence, oftentimes do not just suddenly go from being a happy, healthy individual to perpetrating intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. Good majority mm-hmm. of the population who perpetrates violence against another person, and particularly against a partner have experienced violence themselves, either that they have been a victim of child abuse, that they had been involved in gang or youth violence, that they had been witness to intimate partner violence in their homes or violence in their communities. And so there is trauma already sort of set in, and there is trauma that they're probably continuing to experience. So some of our recent studies that I've been working with another investigator, Penelope Morrison, on has been looking at battering intervention programs and is what we're trying to do with battering intervention programs, and then also what are the male clients saying that they learn or gain from experiencing the, the programs. And while we did not design the study at all to explore. Prior trauma. When we ask the question, what would you advise would be necessary for us to try to intervene for boys to prevent them from falling into the same situation that you've fallen into, they will mention that. They will mention a key component of this is to be able to help create a safe place and a safe space to address the trauma that those boys may be experiencing or have experienced.
0: A decade ago, Miller began working with a national organization to develop a violence prevention program called Coaching Boys into Men, which was tested here in Pittsburgh, in middle schools. She says it all started with some conversations with men about how to get them involved in addressing violence against women.
1: And what the adult men said is, it would be way too weird to talk to other adult men, but we'd be more than happy to talk to boys. And so what came out of that was identifying, well, who are some important adults in adolescent boys' lives? And, of course, athletic coaches was one. So Coaching Boys Into Men, which was developed by a national nonprofit violence prevention organization called Futures Without Violence, is designed with these very short 15-minute scripted discussions for coaches to have with their male athletes once a week, throughout the sports season. And so the coaches receive a relatively brief training in how to deliver these weekly messages. And it's all written out on a training card so they can pretty much read the script and ask the questions. And what we have found now having tested this in both high school and with middle school male athletes is that we can have quite an impact on increasing what we call positive bystander behavior, so this is when young people see their peers engaging in disrespectful and harmful behaviors and actually do something to intervene whether it's talking to them in public or in private or talking to an adult about what's what they've seen and so coaching boys into men increases the likelihood of these positive bystander behaviors and also in both our high school and middle school data we are seeing a significant reduction in dating abuse purposes.
0: Coaching Boys into Men recently made ink in JAMA, and it's gone global. Miller has published on cricket coaches using it with 10- to 16-year-olds in India. Groups in Uganda and Tanzania have reached out as well. Thanks for listening. A print version of this interview is in our magazine, PitMed. Visit pitmed.health. Dot pitt.edu. That's pit with two T's. This episode was produced by Maya Best and yours truly, Elaine Vitone. Our executive producer is PitMed Magazine editor in chief, Erica Lloyd. Our music was by Blue Dot Sessions. PitMed Magazine is published by the University of Pittsburgh's Office of University Communications and Marketing and the School of Medicine.